fantastic. Amazing. Well, we're going to get right into the Word today, and I wanted to create some space um, for us to be able to worship a little bit today, a little bit extra time of worship at the very end. If you're new here, we like we have a little bit of a s- different structure than, than maybe a, another environment you've been in before. We have our preaching, our, our message at the beginning, and then we like to respond in the end to, w- to worship to God, and the reason is, is because, thank you, sweetheart, the reason is because um, we want to create just a, a, a space for us to respond to the word of the Lord. It's easy to come into church and have a word and leave and not really allow the Holy Spirit to come and water it. And so that's what we, what we do here. And uh, we're ex- I'm excited today about this message that we started last week in the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, I'm super, super excited about it. And I, I really pray that today uh, this message impacts you. Uh, as we talk about some really important things as being a follower of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I, I find uh, is interesting about 1 Corinthians is that I chose this book. I'm not being rude again. As I say this every week, it's because I forget to turn on uh, my sermon slides here. And hey, uh, would, uh, Ricardo, would you put up that first slide for me on my sermon slides? Uh, one before that, if you could. Thank you. There we go. Uh, I chose this because um, I, I want to lay a foundation as, uh, as my primary job here is to, is to teach the Bible. And my goal is to lay a foundation through the 2018 of a Bible study that we're walking through the scripture verse by verse together. And so th- the reason is, is because it'd be easy for me to preach on all the things I love to preach on. It'd be easy for me to preach on prayer or pre- preach on hel- uh, uh, holistic health, which we will do throughout the year. And being a, a, a person who's a a disciple of Jesus Christ, and just all these things that I love to preach about. But I, I find that when you study the Bible verse by verse, it forces us to talk about things that are in the Bible that you and I might not want to talk about. And I chose the book of 1 Corinthians because it's a very, very uh, poli- politi- politically incorrect book. <laughs> and it's going to bring up some stuff in our journey that is happening in our world that happened in the book of Corinthians that Paul addressed. And what we're going to do is look at it from a biblical framework and just kind of try to draw out how we are to live this life as followers of Jesus, surrounded by uh, the incredible, crazy culture that we live in. And so we're going to get right into it today. That Behind me, if you have Uversion, uh, it's an app you can download. Uh, you can go ahead and go to Uversion, and on the bottom, click on More, uh, and then click on uh, Events, type in Love City Church, and then you can save that profile, uh, and all the notes are there. So if you're in the mom's room, the screen's a little bit hard to hear, uh, you can just look on your phone there, and, um, and we'll get into it right now. Awesome. I just want to pray, and uh, we'll get into it. Amen. Father, I just thank you for today. And Lord, I believe, and I, I believe that your word is absolutely the truth. In fact, I don't believe there are any truths outside of the Bible and Jesus. And so today, Father, as we study your word, I pray for every individual here today, every heart. And Father, I pray that that every heart here today would be good soil. We take out all the rocks and all the weeds and all the the hard places of our heart today, Father, and we say, Lord, Holy Spirit, we just open up our hearts to you. And we just come today, Lord, not wanting to have an agenda outside of understanding who you are. And we want to know better how to be followers of Jesus Christ. So, Father, here at Love City Church, our heart is to learn to love God and to love people, to make healthy, healthy and growing and loving followers of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, so I pray today that would be the outcome. That would be the goal. That would be the initiative. And I pray that your spirit would come and minister to us as we respond and worship in the end. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, let's get into this this morning. We're going to read uh, just, um, we're going to start in our first two verses of the book of 1 Corinthians. Last week, I laid a foundation. If you did not hear last week, I'm not going to do a recap today. But if you're wondering about what is truth, last week I laid a foundation for truth that I, I feel is a really good idea for you to listen to if you're in the season where you're wondering about truth. Go back and look uh, at our, our online sermons. You can li- all podcasts, iTunes, uh, Google Play, SoundCloud, all those different places you can listen. And go back and listen to that message. It's on there for you. But today we're going to get right into our very first uh, two verses found in 1 Corinthians verse 1 and 2. We're going to do uh, verse 1. In a couple of weeks, we're going to focus on verse 2 today. It says this, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, we'll talk about Sosthenes in a couple of weeks, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So obviously Paul is writing to Corinth, and the book of of Corinthians was written by Paul the Apostle. He was about 55 years old. He was in Corinth for about a year and a half, and then he traveled to Ephesus. And when he was in Ephesus, uh, planting the church of of Ephesus, where we get the book of Ephesians, he began to write letters uh, back to the church of, 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 of Corinth. And so we see, I wanted to give you a little context. Um, I'm going to read from this new Bible that my friend gave me and that I love. Thank you very much. Uh, in uh, Acts uh, chapter 18, and it's uh, found in verse 1 to 11, and it is on the screen, uh, but I want to read it out of here because I just like this Bible. Uh, it was only $8, too, so there you go. A- Acts 18, 1 to 11. After this, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth and found a Jew, and found a Jew, and found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, and recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. So Timothy and uh, Silas came, and they literally took over Paul's business so Paul could focus on teaching the word. And so it says that he was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook off his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. Wow, that's a great tool. I'm innocent. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named uh, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His, His house was next to the door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of that synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God, among them. Corinthians was a city where uh, of about 700,000 people, 250,000 of them were most likely uh, Greeks, and then they had two servants per household. So about 200 or 700,000 people lived in Corinth. And as I shared last week, Corinth was a, a city abounding in sin, abounding in all sites, uh, sorts of 
cultural norms that we even experience today in our world on some level. There was uh, incredible, they were passionately uh, zealous for Greek philosophy, wanting to know every single doctrine and teaching that was out there. They were such a religious people that they wanted so badly to hear about every religion and every philosophy and every idea and every perspective. They were passionate about uh, athletics and sports. They had their, their Greek um, the Greek uh, 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 um, competition, excuse me, in, in the Colosseum. And these men would, would, were, were greased and, good. I don't know if you saw the Olympics uh, opening ceremonies, but it was like the guy from Tonga, you know, like he had his shirt off and he was greased. That's what they looked like. They were these chiseled individuals who were experiencing uh, this amazing athletic ability and they, they almost worshipped these men as they would compete in the, in the Colosseum. This uh, city was a home to 12, pagan temples. It was prevalent with different temples across the city that were worshiping different gods. One of them specifically being the goddess of Aphrodite, and Aphrodite would, would, was the goddess of love, and they would have over a thousand uh, prostitutes, and when a man or a woman would want to worship the goddess of Aphrodite, they would go in and they would have sex with multiple, multiple, multiple women as they brought this, this eros love into the goddess of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Sex permeated this society. It was constant sexualization of everything that they did. Prostitutes were there morning, night, and evening, all the time available at any moment to receive and not only male or women prostitutes, but it was prevalent for male prostitution, men dressing like women. It was common in that day to have different individuals who would look like a woman but was actually a man, and it was just prevalent in that environment. And they had all sorts of uh, desires for, uh, they were a partying culture where they drank to the point of, 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 of drunkenness and they would uh, take meat and they would sacrifice animals to their gods and then they would sell these, uh, this meat that was uh, given to the, to the sacrifices of idols and they would sell it in the, in the meat market and they would satisfy their sexual urges. And so Paul was knowing this when he started the church, God led him there. To Aquila and Priscilla, who were Jews, and they were tent makers, and he connected with them, and he tried to preach the gospel to the Jews, but the Jews rejected him, and so he said, well, the blood, your blood's going to be on your own shoulders. I mean, that's an crazy thing that Paul said to them. He said, listen, you're not going to listen to me. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. I'm going to go over here where I think they might listen to me, and so Paul continued to preach the gospel, but it's incredible that he preached the gospel in this relative, uh, relative truth environment culture that really said anything goes there's all roads lead to god all things pleasure yourself it's all about your desires and your wants and your needs and so paul planted this church and he began to walk them in a journey on how to be the disciples of jesus the church began to grow paul left and he was in uh, in ephesus and he got a letter from chloe who was the leader of a house church saying the church has fallen apart. Things are going crazy. There's factions that are starting where one person says they're following the super apostle Apollos, and one's Paul, and one's Peter, and one's Jesus, and these factions are started among the church, and one of those leaders had sex with his mother-in-law. And so while he was having sex with his mother-in-law, instead of the, the church disciplining him and saying that's not okay, they began to create a doctrine and a culture in the church that said, I don't want to address it. Actually, you're free in Christ to do whatever it is you want to do. So in the church, there were 
individuals who were engaging in all sorts of realities of sin, and the church wasn't saying anything because they began to believe this idea that it's just okay, it's just their way, I don't want to address it, I don't want to touch it, I don't want to go there. And so all these different crazy things were happening. Not only that, but they were prophesying in the church and speaking in tongues, which is fine, but they were doing it uh, not in the right order, in the right way. They were also finding that the, because of the sexualized culture, there was another doctrine happening in the church where they would begin to teach that all sex was bad. So not even married, a man and a woman who were married could have sex. They were saying that's not okay. That's a, 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 you're, you're, you're fulfilling your own desires. You, you need to lay down all desires you have. And they were beginning to teach that no one could have sex at all. It was no sex in the church at all. Between a marriage, nothing. So you had all these things happening in the church. And Paul got this letter, and he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to 4, and he's just about to send it, and he got another report, and the report came of this incest in the church, of, of this sexual immorality. And so then he wrote chapters 5 and 6, and then he said, well, while I'm here, let me finish 7 to 16 to give more order to the church about some things I'm hearing. And he sent the letter off back to the church of Corinthians for them to be able to understand what it meant to be in the world but not of the world. I want to share a scripture with you today that we'll probably get to later in our series, of course. We'll get more into detail, and we'll actually break down some of what these things mean. But today I'm going to read it, and what it is 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 what Paul is doing is he's identifying the culture of Corinth. He's identifying the specific things in the culture of Corinth, and it's a very strong passage. So open your ears and your heart today. As I read the word of God, as you read this, let let the realities of what these words are saying impact your perspective. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. He says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. That word means don't deceive yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes, that phrase male prostitute in the actual definition of the Greek word is those men who are effeminate, men who are uh, men but acting like women. Very, very clear in the scripture. You can look it up yourself in the Greek text. Actually, the, the definition of that phrase is effeminate. Or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or are greedy people, or drunkards, or are abusive, or cheat people, None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, some of you were once like that. So what Paul is doing here is Paul is actually identifying very specifically some of the things that are notable in the Corinthian culture. He identifies that, and remember he's writing to the church, he's writing this letter to combat some things that are happening in the church, and he begins to say, these are some things that I need you to know that are not in the purview of a follower of Jesus Christ. These are things that, 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 that are not what the church looks like. And he begins to go through this list and say, these individuals that are doing this, they are not inheritors of God's kingdom. And he begins to contrast the culture versus what the church looks like. 
He identifies in this scripture that, sexual, as I mentioned, sexual reality is commonplace. That it would be very common for prostitution to flood the streets and everything was sexualized, much like our culture today. I can't even turn on the television and watch a commercial without it being sexualized. You would probably agree with me that we live in a very sexualized culture. Well, this was a very similar reality, except they didn't have internet and they didn't have it digitized, so they had to work even harder to get it out there. So the sexualization was there, and it was very common for a man to cheat on his wife in the Greek culture. Very, very actually encouraged to, to cheat on your wife. It was very, women couldn't do it, mind you, only men. When, if a woman cheated on her husband, they would be stoned and killed. <laughs> but a man was encouraged to cheat as often as he wanted because they believed in this idea. They didn't believe in the, sanctimony, the, 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 the sanctified realities of marriage under God. They were, it was a, a marriage, but I really, as a man, had the right to sleep with whoever I wanted. This idea here was incorrect. The idea of homosexuality was commonplace. Men and men, women and women, and very common bisexuality where a man would sleep with a woman and also sleep with a man. It was pervasive in the Corinthian culture, and I find it very interesting that the scripture very clearly identifies that that was something in the culture that the church should not partake in. And we see that very clearly, that he said homosexuality was a very common thing. There were idols everywhere, idols in their businesses, idols in their home, idols in their bags, idols in their luggage, idols everywhere, idols on the streets, idols on the floors, idols, 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 idols. In fact, Paul, in Acts 17, 6, was in Athens, just near Corinth, and as he was there, it says, while Paul was waiting in, in uh, chapter 17, 16, while he was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was so full of idols. There's so many idols. There's idols everywhere. And he, if you read that scripture, he went on to challenge the people of Athens saying, you have a lot of idols. It means you're very religious, but I know the real true God that you're looking for. Idolatry was huge there. People would party. They would they would put some of our culture today to shame they would and i think calgary's known for for parties we like to party and but they would get so drunk that they would have crazy mass orgies with one another they got so intoxicated and they got so drunk and the, the, the alcoholism was so prevalent in their society crime was so high they you it was said that the corinth was a port city and it was very common to be a very uh, port place a very very important place for commerce and you would, get, you would get ripped off by business owners who were uh, shady deals, and they would lead you, like if you actually went to a lot of these places like uh, Mexico or, or Italy or these different places you walk in, you've got to be careful because some places are looking just to take advantage of you because you're a tourist. And it was very common in that day to get swindled, to get taken advantage of, where you would say, oh, that looks like a good deal, or I, I'm going to make business with you, and then it wouldn't turn out right. There was greed. The idea of Corinth culture was that everybody was trying to keep up with the Kardashians. They didn't have a man, but you get what I mean. The Kardashians, they had to look the part. They had to act the part. They had to own the part. It didn't even matter if they could afford it. The, the, the idea of covetousness and greed in this culture, the idea was to reach, to emulate Greek gods and goddesses. And so I had to look perfect. I had to dress perfect. I had to have a perfect wife and a perfect relationship and a perfect marriage and a perfect parents. Perfect, 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 perfect. And I was greedy to get more. This was the culture. Now, it sounds very familiar to the culture that you and I live in right now. And in fact, many theologians and commentaries would say that if Paul were to be alive today and to write a book of the Bible, he would write the book of Corinthians and hand it to North American churches. He would say, listen, this is the culture we live in. 
And Paul doesn't, you, you, read, it, you read it with me. He doesn't make any uh, uh, qualms about the difference between the culture and the church. Very clear. I don't see any gray. He just says, this is the culture. People who live in this type of way and inherit, the lo- they invest themselves into this lifestyle. Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. Don't you realize that they just won't inherit God's kingdom? But remember, he's talking to the church. And that's very interesting. You might think that his greeting in this book was just a common greeting, that that Paul wrote this to everybody. He was immediately in the very first verse, or the second verse of this uh, book, trying to identify, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Look at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2. He says, says, to the church of God. He's identifying, he's writing this letter because people uh, in the church had gotten, become followers of Jesus Christ. They got saved. They became followers of God. And then when Paul left, they began to slip back into their old way of life. Things began to go crazy. No one was addressing it. So Paul wrote this letter to say, I want to remind you of who you are. And that word church is actually an interesting word. It's the word ecclesia. And this word, uh, I'm sorry, ecclesia. The ordinary Greek would define this as any secular assembly, but the Church of Christ furthered that to actually, not just an ordinary designation, but actually to mean the assembly of God's people, to be the assembly of God, God Yahweh, God Jesus, to be a place where God met. It was also defined, the, the, the phrasing, the called out ones. Those who've been called out of something into something. Those who have been separated from where they were out of that place into something new. In fact, the word, uh, when Paul wrote this word, most likely he was thinking through it, a Jewish mindset. He was actually thinking about Israel. And when he wrote this, he wasn't thinking about our context of church where we meet, uh, where we have the structures we have. I'm sure there's a lot that we're trying to build that is very similar. I would, I would hope so. But there's some things that they didn't do then that we're doing now. So when we say the word church, you're thinking like a Sunday gathering church where we're there for an hour and that's our only real engagement with the church. And that's fine. But that's not what Paul was referring to. He was actually talking about a group of people. He was talking about Israel. And if we look back on what Moses said, Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4, and 5, he said, hear, O Israel. So he's talking about the church. This is a type of the church. He says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your strength. This was written months after they had just left Egypt. The people of Israel were in Egypt. They were going to... uh, go across the Red Sea and be exodus out of Egypt. Moses slapped, or put the, slapped the water, and if you've ever seen the movie Prince of Egypt, it might give you a visual. It sh- water shoots up in the air. I thought it was so cool, and as they're going across, they get across, and at the last minute, the soldiers are trying to get them, and the water collapse on all of Egypt, and the Pharaoh, and all these different things, and God defends them, and then they build a memorial to God, and um, 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 Miriam does this amazing song, and then just three days after that, they were complaining that they didn't have water, and so Moses slapped the rock, and water came forth, and as they were traveling for this, this season, God provided manna, bread from heaven and quail and a fire by night and a cloud by day and miracle after miracle after miracle God provided for the people 
They came to a place where Moses was asked to go on top of a mountain. He walks up on top of this mountain and the people of God are waiting down below. 1.5 million people are living their life and Moses is up on the mountain and God gives him a moral code to live by. He says, I, I want you to know that I'm about to give you 10 things that are actually going to be your way to, to, to please me, not only that, but also to experience everything that I have for your life. Now, there's many more that were added, but 10 of these, these 10 commandments are kind of the moral code, your framework for your life. And Moses comes down the mountain, and he pulls up this massive stone. I don't know how big it was. Maybe it was an iPad. Who knows? But it was a big stone. He pulls it up. Swipes his finger. Just kidding. Uh, it says, thou shalt not have any other God before me. Now, you have to understand something about the people of Israel. This was a crazy thought. The people of Israel were a highly pluralistic, dualistic people. They came from an environment where they had gods for everything. They had gods for their dishes. They had gods for their horses. They had gods for the sky. They had gods for the trees. They had gods for the tent. They had gods for the ground. They had gods for the grass. They had gods for the water. And if they wanted to go get water uh, from the river, they would on their way have to stop and make sacrifices to the field, the, the bale of the field, because so, they didn't want to curse me and the bale of the trees and the bale of the wind and the bale of the sun and the bale of the moon and the bale of the blah, 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 And you get down to the water, you got to do a bale of the water. It was constant trying to receive every blessing from God that they could. They were a dualistic, pluralistic society. Prior to meeting God, they had many gods. In our culture, we have the God of greed and the God of sex, and we have the, the God of consumerism and the, go the God of covetousness and the God of alcoholism and the God of, of, of homosexuality and the God of adultery and the God of here and the God of there. Just like our culture, they had this idea, this pluralistic idea, and when Moses came down the mountain and said, God wants me to tell you that you cannot have any other gods before me, it blew their mind. You're telling me that I can no longer have any other God in my life but you. So what Moses did is Moses then gave these Ten Commandments and God called him back up to the mountain. Moses goes back up to the mountain. He's meeting with God. Forty days he's up there and the people got restless. This is literally just one month after Moses just declared the number one kind of moral code is that you've got to have no other gods before me. And Exodus 32.1 says, and the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain. They gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. And Moses came down and saw they did that and made them chisel this rat. It was a rat god. It was really weird. Why did they choose a rat? I don't know. Maybe it was a calf. I don't know. Either way, maybe there's another rat. Anyways. It was nasty, and they built it, and they gold, and they, they went through all this effort, and then Moses made them grind it down to powder and made them drink it. I don't know why, but anyways. Shame on you, drink this. <laughs> and then Moses turned around, and he said this statement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And so we see that picture of the church, the type of the church of Israel, one God, no idols, you are set apart, you are the church, you are the ecclesia. And then we come back over to Corinthians and Paul is doing the same thing. 
He says, church, listen, you're the church of God. You're the called out ones. You've been called out of this culture. You've been pulled out. You've been yanked out of this culture. You are the church of God. Amongst a culture, you're the church. And see, when Paul wrote this verse, he says, don't you realize, don't fool yourselves. This leads us to believe that, that many followers of Jesus were in the church being deceived, that, that, that beginning to embrace the idea that if I, I don't necessarily have to separate myself from that type of life or that type of culture, I can just continue to live in that culture and it's going to be okay and condone it and be all right with it. When Paul said, listen, he said, don't be deceived. That word deceived literally means that this metaphor is taken from a straying sheep. Sheep, don't go astray. Don't, don't be in delusion. D don't, don't roam from the truth. Don't deviate from God's word. Don't be seduced. Paul's saying, listen, don't be seduced by this culture to think that, that just because it's, it's hard truth, just because our world accepts it, just because the, the, the majority of people say it's okay, just because it feels right, just because it might offend someone that you don't agree. The reality is Paul's saying, don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. Don't think for one moment that in this culture and in this society that you can have any other gods before him. You are the church amongst a, a wicked culture. You're the church amongst a culture who doesn't know God. I made this statement last week, and I want to say it again for us to, to, be con to, to be angry and mad at people for living a lifestyle that isn't godly when they don't know God it makes no sense to me. They don't know any different. Why would we say, you can't live that way? I'm not telling individuals outside the church not to live a certain way. I'm talking to the church, saying, you're the church. You've been called out. You've been separated You've been pulled out of that culture, out of that place, out of that society. And Paul wanted to identify. He wanted them to know immediately, listen, you have to understand that you are the church of God in this culture, but you are not of the culture. And look what he says, again, to 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Some of you were once like that. This would imply that in the church there were those who had, had, had been in adulterous relationships, those who had been greedy, those who had been uh, living a homosexual lifestyle, those who had come from a, from a, a, a dark lifestyle of, of the sexual sins or, or greed or, or, or stealing or all these different things. That would imply that there should be people in the church who do have this in their history. That would mean that they came from a culture where they didn't know God, but then they heard the gospel of the truth and something changed in their life and they realized, oh my gosh, I can't live like this anymore. It's not fulfilling me like I thought it would only Jesus can fulfill me only his word can fulfill me only this community can fulfill me but it would be foolish to think that those individuals will immediately stop what they once did and so although there's grace and there's an understanding that you've been washed and you, you've been set free, you've been transformed, the reality is, is that for you to go from one day to the next, yes, God does that a lot in our lives, but there's some things, attitudes and behaviors that are habitual that God needs to change in your life, and sometimes it takes a little time. And Paul was saying you've got to be reminded that when you get back into that, you're slipping back into that old way, oh, you're the church. You've been called out. And this is why Paul wrote this letter. Look what he says. He takes it farther. He says, okay, I'm writing this letter to, 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 to the church of God in Corinth. And then he says, to those 
sanctified in Christ Jesus. So he went from talking, okay, I'm talking in Corinth. There's Corinth, I'm talking to the church. Now, move that aside, now I'm talking to the church, and in the church, I'm talking to those in the church who are sanctified. I'm talking to the individuals in the church who are really followers of God. This might bother you, but I have a firm belief that there are many people who call themselves Christians or they have, a, uh, they have a, a religious background who go to church who are actually not followers of Jesus. The Bible clearly says that the road to heaven is narrow, and so it's my job to bring that to your attention because just because we say a prayer but our life does not emulate the sanctified life does not mean you will go to heaven. The truth and the reality is, is that in the church, there are those who are sanctified. So we have Corinth, Church of God. We have Church of God and those who are sanctified. And my prayer and my heart is that you would begin to go down that journey of allowing God to sanctify your life and transform your life, which would mean that you stop doing some of the things that you used to do because you now know it doesn't honor God and you don't see it like you, yeah, I used to see it. I now realize there's, this isn't morally right like I used to think it was, but now it's not because God is showing me through his word that I have to be sanctified in Christ. That word sanctified actually it actually means, I went ahead of myself here. I want to read this verse here before I tell you what sanctified means. Look what he says in Acts 18. I read it already, but look what he says. For I have many in the city who are my people. I found this very interesting that God didn't say, everyone in that city are my people. He said, I want everyone in that city to be my people. I have a desire that you would be my people, but the reality is there are only a, there are only a few. There are only there are many, but it's not everybody. And Paul was encouraged by this to know it feels like there's nobody, and the reality is is that not everybody's going to come. Not everyone in Calgary is going to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You might say, "What, Ryan? Isn't all men? Yes, God wants all mankind, and so do we. But the reality is, there are only those. Men, only many will turn their hearts to the living God because it requires a sacrifice of self. It requires a laying down of my pride. It requires an admittance that I'm not right, and, you, and His word is true, and I'm a, I'm not right. There's a lot that goes into that, and the reality is, is that in our culture, in today's in today's pervasive sexualized culture, many will not accept Christ." Out of the big challenge it is, it can be a real challenge to follow the Lord. Though it's life-giving and it's liberating and it's amazing and it's life-changing and I begin to live life the way that God intended me to live and I'm now functioning as I was originally created, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's hard sometimes to get there. And what he said in the scripture is, is that I have many who in the city, I, I have many who are mine. And of those many, I'm talking to those who are sanctified in Christ. And the word sanctified here means purified. To cleanse internally and externally. To free from guilt and renew the soul. To make holy. To make sacred. Dedicated to God. The word sanctified means holy. Set apart for God. Called out by God. The word sanctified is actually the, the one word that would, would, would kind of the definition I can use is the word sanctified means to become more like Christ. So you're on a journey, you're sanctified, you're, you're washed, you're cleaned, you're forgiven, you're healed, the shame is gone, the guilt is gone, you've been renewed, you've been restored, you've been made new, but then it's this journey. So that's where most Christians are. I've been washed, I've been saved, I've been, I, I said the prayer, I go to church, I've been water baptized, I've done those things, and you're here. But now this sanctification process is you becoming more 
like Christ. And that sanctification process is the difference between those who are just the church of God and those who are sanctified in the church of God. Or those who say yes to this process of sanctification. And sanctification means that you are holy. Now, does it mean that I'm perfect? No. Does it mean that I've got it all figured out? Well, gosh, gosh no. Does it mean that I'm, I, I, I go throughout the day without sinning? Well, I, some people believe that. You Listen, you're not going to stop sinning until Jesus comes back. So just get over that fact. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to fail. You're going to really, really screw up. But I can tell you, after serving Jesus for over 30 years, there's a lot of stuff in my life. I had crazy, crazy habits, terrible addictions. You guys all know the story. Terrible addictions in my life. And I am a testimony of what sanctification looks like. A habit that was so deep into my system, deep into my perspective, I was so disillusioned and deceived to think that I could continue doing those things and still inherit God's kingdom and still have a great marriage and still be a good dad and realize that I have to be willing to go down the sanctification process to become more like Christ. I can't just be a Christian. I have to be a disciple. And that is the big difference. And what Paul is saying here is he's trying to draw out those and speak to those who are really, really serious about what it means to be a follower of God. And he says, listen, you have been sanctified. You've been set apart. You've made holy. And now you're on this journey. Romans 12, 2 kind of uh, says the the idea of sanctification in a verse. And so, dear brothers, 12, 1 and 2, brothers and sisters... I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and a holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. What did he ask you to offer? Your bodies. He's not talking about your mind. He's not talking about your heart. He's talking about your physical life. I find that very interesting here. He isn't just saying just give your heart. He's saying your conduct, your outside conduct. And look what it says next. Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world. But let, let, that's the sanctification word, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. So he says, okay, you can no longer, you gotta take your body, your physical life, yes, your mind, yes, your heart, yes, your soul. Let's take that aside for a moment. But now let's talk about your body, your conduct, your behavior. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about you understanding that if you want to be a called out church of God, sanctified by Christ, and experience everything that God has for your life, you have to understand that it has implications in your physical life. It has implications in how you do your finances. It has implications in how you have your marriage. It has implications on what you're looking at and what you're doing and what you're engaging in. It has absolute implications in every area of your life, in the physical realm. And Paul says, listen, don't copy the behaviors and the customs of this world. You see the the customs and the behaviors of this world and you find yourself doing that. You say, stop it. Let God transform you, metamorphosize you like a, like a, like a, uh, a caterpillar into a, into, a, into a cocoon, into a butterfly. Let there be a metamorphosis in your life to change the way you see the world and you see truth. First Peter says it too, for, for, for chapter 1, 14 and 16. So you must, must, must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. Remember, this is another author, another book. This is Peter. 
You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy, sanctified, set apart, called out in everything you do. Just as God who chose you is holy, for the scripture says you must be sanctified, holy, becoming more like Christ, just like I am holy. So you say, Ryan, are you saying perfection? You're saying, I just need to start being holy. Well, no, trust me. Holiness only comes from a relationship with Jesus. And will you ever experience perfection? No, you will not. But you can begin the journey of becoming more like him. And very clearly, it happens. It's fleshed out in our conduct, how we live our lives. And finally here, with our key text in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, notice he takes it even further. Corinth, he says, okay, to the, to the church of God in Corinth. Then he says, okay, now, to the sanctified in the church. Now he says, okay, to the sanctified in Christ Jesus. It's easy for you to be sanctified. There's a lot of people I know who are not followers of God who look very sanctified. They don't drink. They don't curse. They, and I'm just using frivolous things, so don't think that if you drink or curse here, that means you're a <laughs> sinner. So for, let me make create that context that's not what i mean i'm just using it as an example you have you ever met those people who don't know god but they're just really good people and some level they're sanctified in fact i meet a lot of unbelievers who sometimes feel like they're more christians than i am they don't even know god so there's a difference between being a good person and being sanctified in christ Jesus. And I want to define this for you because it's very important as we end our time together as I talk about the idea of truth. So at the end of 1 Corinthians uh, 6, Paul, Paul, remember he said, you know, don't be deceived. Uh, These individuals won't inherit the kingdom of God. He lists the things and he says, you used to be like that. And I took out this part of the verse just for effect. But now you can see the last part of this verse in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. He goes, but you once were like that, but now you were cleansed you were made holy, you were sanctified, and you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he declares, okay, you're the church, you've been set apart, you've been called out, you are solely God's, God's, he is one God in your life. Okay, so you're the church of God. And then he says, okay, you're sanctified, you're becoming like Christ, you're, you're, you're on this journey to, to see things new. He's transforming the way that you see, he's transforming your perspective, you're viewing life differently, you're viewing your, your relationships differently, you now have this new lens. So you're called out, you're the church, you are sanctified, and now he wants to identify what your foundation of truth, what your foundation for why you act the way you act he says now i'm going to give you the reason how you can dictate your conduct and actually where our moral line comes from in this today's culture where do we find truth where do we find morality where do we find the foundation in which what is right and what is wrong ryan how can you say that is wrong well firstly because as i'll show you in a minute the idea of truth well ryan what is true and here we see in the scripture Paul actually dials down into this truth that I want you to understand today. He says, sanctified in Christ Jesus. In John 17, Jesus is talking. John, the disciple, is writing this of Jesus. He was there. He penned it while he was there. And in John chapter 17, it says, verse 14, 18, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you protect them while in the world from the evil one. 
They are not of the world, that, and even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. This is why I discourage Christians from fleeing from culture. This is why I don't think you should go live in a bunker in, in, in the country to get away from the culture. Jesus said he sent you into that culture. It's not bad to live in the country, but you hear what I'm saying. <laughs> Look what Jesus says, the very first phrase. He says, I have given them your word. That word here, I want to give you three definitions. The first definition is the Greek word. The Greek word here is sayings of God, doctrine or teaching, a reasoning of the mind. So the word logos here actually means a moral teaching of God. And then I want to use Greek philosophy to define the word. Greek philosophy defines the word as a universal divine reason or the mind of God. So now we have two definitions for the word logos. We have the moral teachings of God and we have the mind of God. And the third definition is a Merriam-Webster's. Very simple. The word logos, the divine wisdom and manifest in the creation, government, and redemption of the world and often identified with the second person of the Trinity. So Merriam-Webster defines the idea of word or the Greek word logos as the second person of the Trinity. So we have three definitions in this verse. We have the idea that the logos or the word, God said, Jesus says, I give given them your logos. Logos is the moral precepts of God, the moral teachings of God, the mind of God, and Jesus. And so here, look what he says next. He, he boils us down a little bit more. John writes in uh, chapter 1, 1 to 5, he says, in the beginning was the word, the logos. In the beginning was the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. And the word, the logos, was with God. And the, the logos, the word, was God. So now he's calling the Logos God. So now we see that the moral precepts of God, the moral teaching of God, the mind of God, and the second person of the Trinity, who is Jesus, John is calling that God. So now we have two definitions from this word. We have the idea of writings, teachings, doctrine, and a man named Jesus. And here we see in John 17, 7, Sanctify them by your truth. Look at this. Your word is truth. So the word sanctify, so become like Christ by the truth. And then Jesus goes further to tell you what the truth is. Your word, logos, is truth. So we actually have a breakdown. So you say, Ryan, what is truth? This is a biblical idea of truth, the moral teachings of the mind of God, so the Bible. The second person of the Trinity who was in the beginning was with God and is God, Jesus. So you say, Ryan, where do I find, where, where do, I'm not just sanctified, I'm not just a good person, I'm not just becoming more like God, I'm actually sanctified, I'm becoming more like God, more like Jesus, more like the truth. What is the truth? The Bible is the truth, and Jesus is the truth. And when you have that as your foundation, now you can begin to answer the morality question of right and wrong. What is right and what is wrong? How do I live in a, a life and a culture with no absolute truths and no relative truths? The question of morality can be answered through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ because Jesus lived a perfect life with no sin. Peter says it, Paul says it, and John says it in the scriptures. I'm not going to show you, but they're there, and I can show you later, proven that Jesus himself is the moral standard for how our life should be like. And did you know that Christianity, if you take Christ out of Christianity, it no longer exists? 
Christianity is not based on religious teaching. Christianity is not based on ethical teaching. If you take uh, Muhammad out of the Quran or out of the teachings of the Quran, you still have Islam because it's founded on the teachings, not on a man. And the difference for you and I is that when you are trying to understand what truth is and what our culture says is truth, you have to come back to the place where you realize, I am the church of God. I am not only sanctified, but I am sanctified by the truth. God's word, the Bible, and the man named Jesus Christ, who was 100% man, 100% God, sinless. He lived a sinless life, a virgin birth, lived on this life, died in the grave, was buried for three days, and he rose again, a historically proven reality through a majority of teaching throughout historical evidence. You will find that the only place of historical documents that says that Jesus didn't die on a cross is the Quran. Every other historical teaching, every other historical document will reflect the very truth that Jesus Christ died and rose again on the third day. And because we have Jesus as moral truth, you now can look in the scripture and understand when the Bible says, listen, don't be deceived. This is what the culture looks like. And you have to understand, you cannot live like that culture or you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You say, wow, that's, I don't like that. Well, that's too bad. Just because it's truth, it doesn't mean you have to believe it. And like my crayon box last week, as I shared, how many crayons are in this box? You say, well, Ryan, I don't like the fact that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. I don't like the fact of what the scriptures we read today that says, it said this, this, and this about things that all of you here today, well, Ryan, I don't know if you, I don't know if you can really be the moral standard on, on, on sexual relationships and those kind of things. How can you, listen, I'm just reading the Bible and basing my life on the perfect sinless death of Jesus Christ. And I say, listen, that is a crayon box. No matter what you think, no matter what you feel, no matter what you like about this crayon box, there is nothing. 96 crayons in that box whether you like it or not whether you want there to be 105 there's only 96 and no matter what you think no matter what you feel no matter what our culture says about Jesus no matter what our culture says about God's word no matter what our culture says about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ their belief or non-belief does not make it true your belief your non-belief does not make it true it's not true because you believe it. It's true because it's true. So you have to understand that. I want to end on this today, and I really hope it works. James, you can go ahead and come up. You've seen this before, refraction. This is a picture of our culture. This glass represents your, your view. The spoon represents the truth, the Bible, Jesus, and the red color represents our culture. Now, I, if you were closer, you could see that obviously there's refraction. It would cause there to be a distortion, and this is pretty elementary, so forgive me, but that's how my brain works. You'll see that even though the spoon is, you know that it's distorted, and this is what our culture does. Our culture distorts the word of God distorts our perspective of Christ. They say, you can't know that. You can't understand that. You can't believe that. Well, not only do I have my experience, my, my, my experience with Christ, but I also have historical evidence to prove it. And, but the world says, no, I don't like how that makes me feel. I don't like the fact that you read those verses today. I don't like what this means. This is not good for me. I don't like it. I don't like that you would say that. Well, that's called distortion of God's word. And what happens is, as the scripture says, you are washed by God's word. That's what he says right here. He says, you're washed. So let's hope this works. <laughs> so he comes and he washes you. Is it going to work? 
partially washed. It's just the right side of you. (laughs) You're washed. Now the goal was to make it white, clear. You're washed. You're clean, which means this. All the sin you've done, no matter where you've come from, lifestyle, you've been in sexual relationships outside of the context of marriage, you've been in a homosexual lifestyle, you've been super greedy, you've been all these things that we defined, and you say, defined in Scripture, not me, the Scripture defined it. If you look at those things and say, Ryan, I used to come from, well, you've been washed. As it's changing, you've been washed. You've been forgiven. You've been redeemed. You've been made new. All the guilt is gone. The things I've done, the, the life I've lived while married to my wife, like, listen, I'm an example of a washed individual. I don't experience guilt or shame or fear anymore because of the redemption and the love and the washing of Jesus Christ in my life. I have been washed clean. But just because you're washed doesn't mean you don't still have a distorted perspective of God's word or the truth. And sanctification comes when Jesus slowly begins to show us his word in a way where we begin to see clearly how to live in a culture And the word of God is now accurate. I hope it's straight. Now the word of God is accurate in your mind and your view hasn't changed. You've got the same lens on, but now that you've been washed and now that you see it's getting clearer and you see now that it's straight and you see, okay, now I see God's word more clearly. It makes more sense to me now. You're understanding what it means to be sanctified. And now you're living a life in the world, but not of the world. And that's what Jesus wants to do in our life. Today, as we worship, as we take the next 25 minutes and just spend time in the presence of the Lord, I want you to stand with me for a moment. First, what we're going to do before James leads us, I just want us to take a big, deep breath. (laughs) Come on, just just do a big inhale and exhale for a moment, just physically. something I believe that when we're in the presence of the Lord the word of God is preached what it does is that it comes and impacts our heart my heart my prayer today is that by the end of our time of worship you'll be a little cleaner see a little more clearly and you'll be full of joy would you shut your eyes for a moment Lord I just pray right now Holy Spirit as we respond in worship Today's not a performance, it's not a sacrifice, it's not offering, Lord, it's a broken and a contrite heart. And is anyone here today, Lord, who's been far from you, God, I pray they would hear the gospel message today that he wants to wash you. He wants to forgive you and redeem you and make you new and take you on a journey towards knowing him better. Lord, as we worship, I pray that we would worship with our whole heart. We wouldn't hold back. We wouldn't allow pride or distractions to keep us from pressing in this morning. Let us lift our voices in worship. Let us praise you, God, by opening our mouths and singing the song of praises to our creator, our God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name.
just the name above every other. Jesus, the only one who could ever say, worthy of every breath we could ever the name above every other. Jesus, the only one. Jesus, the only one who could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Come on, church, sing it out. Sing holy. Holy, there 